Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of medical malpractice and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Sometimes, illness sneaks up on us. Typhoid, for instance, has an incubation period that lasts 6 to 30 days. And for a few days after exposure, the patient may not display any symptoms at all. But after about a week, something strange happens. A feeling of general unwellness followed by a headache and a dry cough. Then a high fever sets in, bringing the dark realization that something nasty has taken hold. (coughs) Bennett Clark Hyde was a similar sort of sickness. He incubated for years, plying the Swope family with his devastating charm while hiding his true intentions. To get closer to their fortune, he doled out lethal poisons in plain sight. As Hyde's evil spread like an invisible disease, his in-laws didn't realize what was coming. We rarely do before it's too late. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. For decades, thousands of medical students have taken the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath, choosing to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate those who decided to kill. We'll explore the specifics of how they operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to provide Alastair with some medical insight into our concluding episode of Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde. Dr. Hyde was a surgeon in the early 1900s whose black bag was filled with greed, and he specialized in operating on his patient's inheritance. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde, a surgeon who was accused of killing and poisoning his in-laws in 1909 hoping for a piece of their precious fortune. Last week, we explored Dr. Hyde's early career troubles. He ran into scandal as both a police surgeon and instructor of anatomy. We also tracked how Hyde weaseled his way into Kansas City's eminent Swope family and saw their cousin, James Moss Hunton, to his death. This week, we'll pick up on the heels of that first tragedy as Dr. Hyde guns for control of his wife's family fortune. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. 
find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Late on Friday, October 1st, 1909, the Swope Mansion had taken on a somber stillness. Cousin James Moss Hunton had died just a few hours earlier, evidently from a stroke. But a dark suspicion gripped Nurse Keller, who'd stood beside Moss as Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde attempted to save him. They'd all trusted the 37-year-old doctor, husband to the eldest Swope daughter. But he didn't bat an eye as he drew nearly four pints of blood from the dying man, certainly too many. Unfortunately, as Giles Fowler explains in his book, Deaths on Pleasant Street, Nurse Keller had little time to sit with her concerns. She was too busy preparing for the embalmer's arrival. Shortly before midnight, the man arrived, and Nurse Keller finally had a moment to collect herself. But her quiet contemplation was short-lived. Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde whisked her into the sitting room and asked Nurse Keller to recommend him as the next executor of Colonel Thomas Hunton Swope's million-dollar estate. With Moss gone, the position was wide open. Stunned, Keller reminded Hyde that it wasn't her job to take stances on such matters. Though they left the conversation at that, Hyde's motive was clear. If he had anything to do with it, he'd determine how Colonel Thomas Swope's fortune was allocated. Then, he could ensure his own wife, Frances Swope Hyde, got the heftiest payout. Of course, Colonel Swope wasn't yet dead, so his cash wasn't up for grabs. That was Hyde's first problem. The second problem arose the next day when Hyde invited himself into Swope's room and discovered that Swope had other plans for his will. Swope's trusted colleague, a man by the name of Sylvester Spangler, would be helping the colonel make the final adjustments in the coming days. Apparently, Cousin Moss's death had inspired Swope to act quickly. Dr. Hyde couldn't have that. $140,000 was on the line, enough to buy a mansion like the one the Swope family lived in, and 30 more. He had to strike before the will was changed. So on Sunday, October 3rd, 1909, not yet 36 hours since Cousin Moss's body had gone cold, Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde pulled out some pills. He'd placed two prescriptions a couple weeks earlier and received two very different drugs. One bottle contained capsules of Fairchild's Holodin, a popular digestive aid. The other, cyanide, a powerful poison. Kept in capsules of the exact size, shape, and color, the drugs were completely interchangeable. Except that they weren't. Their effects were the difference between a bowel movement and, well, death. However, since they looked the same, Hyde wouldn't have to explain when he gave one to Swope, a man who'd been suffering severe intestinal issues. Of course he'd take Fairchild's Holodin for his weak stomach. And apparently, he did. According to Nurse Keller, 
When Hyde handed over the mystery supplement, the old man accepted it without question. He resolved to take it and swallowed the capsule. If Bennett Clark Hyde had, in fact, administered a cyanide capsule to Colonel Swope, the man's life was in certain danger. When cyanide is ingested, it's only a matter of minutes before it starts taking its toll on the body. It's a toxin that ultimately kills cells by rendering them unable to use oxygen, and this is particularly dangerous to organs like the heart and brain, which both require oxygen to function. Someone with acute cyanide intoxication needs treatment within 30 minutes of ingestion or their chances are slim. Activated charcoal is one intervention and it works by stopping digestive absorption. Unfortunately, no one but Hyde knew exactly what Swope had just swallowed. So Nurse Keller was perplexed by what came next. Around 8.50 a.m., Swope started making a strange blowing sound. Worried, the nurse examined his face, which held a peculiar expression. Colonel Swope's eyes were directed out the window, completely still. Then, Colonel Swope began to shake violently, throwing back his head like a vision out of a horror film. His eyes shot open wide while his teeth clenched. He continued making guttural noises, and a white substance oozed from his mouth. Panicked, Nurse Keller cried out for Dr. Hyde. As she waited, Francis Hyde entered the room and found her uncle's right arm and leg violently jerking. He'd lost control of his body. Cyanide acts by binding to and inactivating a cellular structure, the mitochondria, that is responsible for harvesting energy from oxygen. This basically translates to rapid cell death in a short time frame, And as we stated earlier, this is detrimental for organs like the heart and brain. Colonel Swope's physical response wasn't atypical of cyanide poisoning. His convulsing and involuntary movements were representative of the poison's attack on his nervous system. It must have been a disturbing sight, Alistair. And Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde was quick to provide a reason when he arrived on the scene a few minutes later. He claims Swope had been stricken by apoplexy, a stroke, probably caused by the stress of Cousin Moss's death. Dr. Hyde was obviously trying to cover himself by providing a scapegoat medical cause for Swope's state. His convulsing and strange noises could have hinted at a stroke, but it's the other symptoms that seem off-base, particularly the foaming at the mouth. Hyde miscalculated, but he probably thought people would believe him because of his medical expertise. Nurse Keller didn't believe him, but she knew better than to challenge his logic. They waited out the convulsions, which lasted for eight to ten minutes, then watched as Swope softened, suddenly caught in a fit of retching. His body was likely trying to rid itself of the poison. Nothing came out. And when Swope had finally stilled enough, Nurse Keller and Dr. Hyde took his pulse. In one moment, it was weak, but the next, it rose up to a speedy 140 beats per minute. In a state of shock, Swope wet himself. Then, according to Nurse Keller, he managed to say, Oh my God, I wish I were dead. I wish I had not taken that medicine. But Dr. Hyde didn't let the man complain further. He ordered Nurse Keller to dose Swope with strychnine. 
It was a strange order. The drug was typically used as a stimulant. With Swope's latest heartbeat reading so high, Nurse Keller was confused. But she did as she was told, and Hyde left the room. Once alone with Swope, however, Nurse Keller decided to do some detective work. Swope seemed intent that the medicine he'd taken earlier had caused his sorry state. If she could find the pink pillbox, she'd be able to confirm that it was little more than a harmless digestive aid. She checked Swope's dresser top, the mantle, the bedside table, and then the closet, but a rigorous search of the room soon revealed that the little medicine container and the pills inside it had disappeared. It seemed someone was trying to hide evidence. And while Colonel Swope might have offered up an important clue, he was now caught on a knife's edge between life and death. Coming up, Dr. Hyde experiments with a new type of poison. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the ParCast series Mythology. Every Tuesday, join me on a wondrous journey back in time, exploring the most epic battles, sweeping love stories, and harrowing adventures ever told. Heroes, gods, monsters, mayhem. This podcast has it all. From the Knights of the Round Table and Hori the Hunter to Paradise Lost and the Lost City of Atlantis. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes history's greatest stories, bringing their origins to life and giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe. Ancient myths, modern twists. Catch new episodes of Mythology every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. By early afternoon of Sunday, October 3, 1909, Colonel Thomas Swope was showing little improvement from his sudden seizures. Following a strychnine injection, his pulse remained rapid. Still, his nephew-in-law, Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde, instructed at least two more doses of strychnine. He provided no justification. And though Nurse Keller thought the prescription odd, since strychnine was typically used to stimulate the heart, she administered the shots. Shortly after, Swope fell into a coma and his lower extremities began to turn a dark purple, as though they were losing oxygen. Soon, his breathing weakened. At 7.15 that evening, it completely stopped. 81-year-old Colonel Thomas Swope, Kansas City's beloved benefactor, was gone. When it came time for the colonel's burial, mourners followed his coffin through pouring rain to Kansas City's Forest Hill Cemetery. It would be held there in the receiving vault until the tomb he'd commissioned in Swope Park was ready. Of course, the true trouble with Swope's death was not so much in the body he left behind. There was a deluge of drama surrounding his will. No new executor had been named, though a team of Swope's confidants had been mentioned as executors. Despite his unsuccessful conversation with Nurse Keller, 37-year-old Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde still felt he could take the man's place, and he seemed to share those sentiments with his wife. 
On Monday, October 11th, shortly after Swope's funeral, Frances asked her mother Maggie if Hyde could be made an executor. Maggie outright rejected the idea. If it was up to her, Hyde wouldn't get a cent of her family's fortune. And it was laughable that Francis thought he'd make an appropriate executor with his history of swindling women. But it would be a while before the estate was effectively allocated. Hyde still had time to make some moves, ones that could clear out the other heirs and secure more money for him and his wife. At dinner on November 1st, 1909, Hyde met with a fellow member of the Jackson County Medical Society, bacteriologist Dr. Edward Stewart. Hyde shared that he'd like to set up a bacteria lab. Naturally, Dr. Stewart encouraged him. He himself was fascinated with disease transmission and inoculation. He even offered Hyde some germ species to help him get started. Hyde eagerly accepted. Stewart had taken the bait. Nine days later, on November 10th, Dr. Stewart transplanted six specimens into glass tubes containing sterile cultured jelly and incubated them overnight. Bacteria needs a medium to hold it and, for certain conditions, to thrive. Sterile cultured jelly keeps bacteria away from harmful contaminants or environmental elements. Even today, bacteria are transported and cultivated in thin layers of a sealed nutrient gel known as auger plates. Dr. Stewart's incubation process was necessary to activate microbial growth. This was a standard procedure here. 24 hours later, the bacteria was ready and Dr. Stewart gave them to Dr. Hyde. There were six different kinds. One was harmless, two were a species known as pus germs, and the last three were more dangerous varieties. Bacillus anthracis, Corynebacterium diphtheriae, and Salmonella typhi, commonly known to cause the deadly infections of anthrax, diphtheria, and typhoid. What Hyde planned to do with these lethal bacterias well, the strategizing came next. Anthrax outbreaks had become far less common in the early 1900s, and little yet was known about diphtheria or how it spread. But typhoid, on the other hand, was rampant in several parts of the US. Maybe you remember from our episodes on the infamous Typhoid Mary, who came under investigation just two years prior in 1907. And at one point in 1909, Kansas City health officers reported 600 patients under treatment for typhoid. This would prove the perfect backdrop for a typhoid outbreak. And in late November of that year, it seems Hyde found an ideal opportunity to unleash his personal batch. On November 21st, Francis and Bennett Clark Hyde were said to have joined the Swopes for Sunday dinner. Among the attendees were Frances's mother, Maggie Swope, her eldest brother, Chrisman, three of Frances's sisters, two cousins, and a house girl. At some point during their visit, the cook heard Dr. Hyde pouring something in the kitchen. She presumed it was water, but she couldn't be certain. It would be another week before Hyde's plot reared its ugly head. It all started on Monday, November 29th, when Margaret Swope, Francis's younger sister, 
cancelled on shopping plans. She said aches and a fever had left her feeling drained. Similarly, the house girl reported feeling under the weather. She had a terrible headache. The very next day, Chrisman Swope fell ill as well, and it was only then that their family physician made an appropriate diagnosis. Typhoid. By this point, doctors knew that the average incubation period for the disease was between about 7 and 14 days. Counting back from the 29th, when the symptoms first revealed themselves, that could have put the exposure date around November 21st, the very night that Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde had allegedly come for dinner. But no one was doing any detective work. At this point, it was more important that everyone in the household recovered. After a week of blissful ignorance, the infected suffered diarrhea, vomiting, rashes, dry cough, and muscle soreness. It was a nasty job for those tending the sick. With all hands on deck, Hyde placed an order at his tried-and-true pharmacy. He wanted six five-grain capsules of cyanide of potassium. He'd requested the same drug the past September. Confused, the clerk asked why he needed them, and Hyde explained he needed to get rid of some pesky dogs. Reluctantly, the pharmacist filled the order on the promise that Dr. Hyde would handle the drugs himself. Hyde was now armed with both a deadly bacteria that was already making its way through the Swope family and another round of lethal drug capsules. By Sunday, December 5th, the Swope residence had become an infirmary. Bennett Clark Hyde had hired five nurses to tend to one houseworker, a family friend, his brother-in-law, Chrisman Swope, his sister-in-law, Margaret, and their cousin. Among them, Chrisman seemed to be faring the best. That was about to change. That Sunday afternoon, Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde made his way to Chrisman's room and, according to one of the nurses on duty, handed him a capsule. Not long after, disaster struck. Chrisman's body suddenly tightened, his limbs shot out, his head tilted back as his facial expressions held a fixed gaze. His muscles spasmed and guttural noises came from his mouth. It was all too similar to the attack Colonel Swope had experienced on the fateful day of his death just two months prior. And, in a chilling parallel, Hyde recommended a strychnine injection. It did little to help Chrisman's stiff state. He continued to shake for about 20 minutes before falling unconscious. Hyde called the culprit meningitis, which he said was commonly brought on by typhoid. Meningitis can cause seizures, but this is a pretty rare complication of typhoid fever, making it an odd first assumption from Hyde. On top of this, fever-induced meningitis likely would have taken a little longer to develop in Chrisman, and even today it takes time to reliably diagnose. Dr. Hyde's quick and definitive conclusion on the matter was strange. Even the family doctor wasn't fully convinced that meningitis was the culprit. When Dr. Twyman arrived late that night, he was perplexed. Chrisman's skin had turned bluish, his eyes were wide open, yet strangely, his pulse was high. Factoring this last detail in, Dr. Twyman found it strange that Hyde had prescribed strychnine injections. 
Nothing in the progression of Chrisman's illness would have substantiated use of a stimulant. Hyde agreed in that moment and assured Twyman he'd switch to morphine. But apparently, this was a lie. He continued using strychnine. For the rest of the day and well into the next, Chrisman remained comatose. Then, Monday afternoon, Chrisman woke in a sudden panic, shot up from his bed and clambered to the floor, uttering nonsensical words just as his uncle had done. But interestingly, Chrisman soon became coherent, even chatty. He seemed like he might even be on the road to recovery. Elated, his mother Maggie Swope reported the news to Hyde, who was downstairs. She told him her son was on the up and up, but the events that follow suggest Hyde had no intention of seeing Chrisman get better. And if he was, that simply wouldn't do. That evening, Hyde allegedly told the nurse on duty to give Chrisman a capsule to be swallowed with orange juice. Its contents quickly worked their way into his body. About half an hour later, Chrisman began to thrash. When the nurse asked Hyde for advice, Hyde instructed, let him alone. While the nurses may have been skeptical, they likely figured Chrisman was as good as he could be in Hyde's hands, so they left the room. For up to an hour, Hyde was alone with Chrisman. It's unclear what happened during that time, but when the nurses returned, Chrisman was exceptionally weak. Yet this time, Hyde ordered an injection of morphine and a hot water enema. This was inappropriate. Someone weakened by convulsions and typhoid fever would need sugar, salts, and fluids. Today, we'd give them antibiotics, possibly with some anti-inflammatory and non-sedating analgesic medications. An enema would exacerbate any dehydration and fatigue from the typhoid fever, and the addition of morphine could dangerously lower his blood pressure and heart rate. Dr. Hyde was wrong here, yet again. He laid on his bedpan for 90 minutes, then completely lost a pulse. At 9.50 p.m. on Monday, December 6th, Chrisman Swope was pronounced dead. Notably, Chrisman had died without children or a written will. His portion of the inheritance would now pass along to his surviving siblings. Among them, Francis Swope Hyde. Coming up, Dr. Hyde covers up his crimes by taking more victims. Now, back to the story. On December 7th, 1909, the eve of Chrisman Swope's funeral, 37-year-old Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde should have consoled his wife and her siblings. But instead, he attended an event as president-elect of the Jackson County Medical Society. After, he took friends out for a celebratory dinner. It wasn't his brightest idea. Hyde's choice offended the Swopes, who buried Chrisman in Kansas City's Mount Washington Cemetery the following afternoon. Though Frances remained in love with her husband, the other Swopes were increasingly upset by his choices. He'd been just a little too matter-of-fact about the three deaths that had befallen the Swope household in recent months, and their opinions of him 
would only continue to sour. In the days that followed the funeral, Sarah and Stella, Francis's teenage sisters, began displaying symptoms of typhoid. Notably, about seven days after accepting a special candy from Dr. Hyde. It was all the more suspicious that Dr. Hyde visited his pharmacist for yet another round of cyanide pills on Thursday, December 9th. The very next evening, he allegedly gave Sarah's tending nurse a pill, urging her to administer it if the girl had trouble sleeping. Luckily, the nurse seemed to remember that both Chrisman and Colonel Swope had taken a very similar-looking pill mere hours before death. So, she tossed it. She wasn't certain that Hyde had nefarious intentions, but she couldn't risk it. And she wasn't the only nurse who had her misgivings about Hyde. On December 11th, Nurse Keller returned to the family to lend a hand after hearing of the recent typhoid outbreak. Though she'd been out on a different job, the suddenness of Chrisman's death had left her shocked. And when she asked Stella about her brother's final moments, the girl said, he died in a convulsion. To Nurse Keller, that sounded a little too similar to the way Colonel Swope had died. If she hadn't been completely convinced that Hyde was up to no good before this, she was now. By this point, Dr. Hyde had quite a few skeptics, yet none were so influential as pathologist Dr. Frank Johnson Hall. In his mind, typhoid couldn't have been Christmas Swope's cause of death. In the typical progression of symptoms, he said he'd never seen anyone die so early on. Dr. Hall was right to question Christmas's hasty death. An untreated acute typhoid infection usually isn't lethal for about three weeks to a month after initial symptoms. At said point, death usually comes from an overwhelming systemic infection, most often caused by bleeding within the intestines or intestinal perforation. Although typhoid certainly debilitated Chrisman, it would have been irresponsible and odd for any doctor to announce a cause of death so quickly and with no autopsy performed. Even stranger, the residents appeared perfectly sanitary, according to Dr. Hall's inspection. He reasoned that the germs must have come from something everybody had eaten, probably on November 20th or 21st. He brought his best guesses to the family. According to Hall, it appeared the germs had entered and exited the Swope home with, quote, all the precision of a scientific experiment. The chilling revelation likely only increased tension in the home, especially as multiple family members remained ill. Thankfully, the Swope residents would experience a few days of peace as Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde made his way to New York to pick up one of the Swope daughters, Lucy Lee, who had been in Europe for some time. Meanwhile, back in Kansas City, Hyde's bacteriologist friend, Dr. Edward Stewart, was poring over the recent tragedies in the Swope household when a thought struck him. He'd given Dr. Hyde typhoid samples in November. He'd hate to think that his trusted colleague had somehow been involved in the outbreak. Though he tried to push the idea from his mind, he woke on Tuesday desperate to speak with Dr. Hyde. That afternoon, he paid a visit to the doctor's office. Unfortunately, it seemed Hyde was away, picking up his sister-in-law in New York. 
Desperate for peace of mind, Dr. Stewart asked Hyde's secretary to let him examine Hyde's bacteria samples. What he found shook him to his core. It appeared as though all of the tubes were completely undisturbed. All that was, except the typhoid culture. The entire upper half of the jelly carrier had been taken. He noted that the sheer amount of germs in the absent portion would have been enough to, quote, inoculate the whole of Kansas City. Stewart took the tube with him and had his associate observe the sample too. That man shared Stewart's chilling perception. Part of the culture had clearly been disturbed. It hit Stewart like a pile of bricks. Maybe the typhoid outbreak in the Swope household wasn't an unplanned tragedy. Maybe Dr. Hyde had knowingly poisoned his in-laws. Hoping to avoid more typhoid cases, he planted an identical-looking tube in Hyde's office the next day. Except this one contained a dead typhoid colony. It couldn't kill anyone. But Hyde wouldn't realize this. Upon his return from New York with Lucy Lee Swope, Dr. Hyde received what should have been good news. His other sister-in-law, Margaret Swope, was recovering. The nurses seemed to feel that Hyde's absence had done her well. Hyde didn't like that. He paid a visit to Margaret's room and asked the tending nurse which capsules Margaret had been taking. He examined the box of medicine and seemingly tampered with it when no one was looking. Because shortly after taking her next pill, Margaret suffered a petrifying convulsion. Stiffness, wide eyes, senseless mumbling, it all echoed the attacks that Colonel Swope and Chrisman had suffered. The difference was, Dr. Hyde had left on business by the time the attack started, so Dr. Twyman was tasked with overseeing treatment. On his orders, the nurses administered an injection of morphine and nitroglycerin. Today, nitroglycerin is used to treat angina because it relaxes blood vessels, increasing blood and oxygen flow to the heart. Morphine can also relax blood vessels, and the two drugs would have worked synergistically to maximize blood oxygen circulation. Also, morphine depresses the nervous system and would have calmed Margaret's convulsions. This prescription was intense, but it definitely beat Hyde's strychnine technique. After 15 minutes of seizing, Margaret slipped into a coma. When she came to, she vomited up a white milky substance. Her nurse was horrified. She fully believed Margaret had been poisoned. Unwilling to risk her own life by continuing to work at the Swope residence, she promptly quit. The other nurses supported her decision. Packed with their own mounting concerns, the nurses brought Dr. Twyman an ultimatum. Either Dr. Hyde be kicked out of the house, or they'd all leave. Matriarch Maggie Swope didn't have trouble giving the order there her son-in-law would have to go. And when the loathed doctor appeared at the residence later that day, he was promptly sent off the premises for a meeting with Dr. Twyman. Within the hour, Twyman informed Hyde that the nurses wanted him gone. More than that, they were convinced he'd killed both Colonel Swope and Chrisman with poison capsules and typhoid germs. 
Though Hyde threatened to sue, Dr. Twyman reasoned with him. The nurses would have no trouble sharing their side of the story with the public. At this, Hyde showed little emotion. He didn't even deny the accusations. He simply stood, went on his way, and left the Swope residence that very night. Two days later, arrangements were made for the post-mortem exams of Colonel Swope and Chrisman. Chrisman's autopsist found typhoid in his intestines, but not enough to cause death. Even stranger, the brain had appeared completely normal. This didn't add up with the cause of death proposed by Dr. Hyde, who thought that Chrisman had died from cerebral meningitis. Cerebral meningitis would surely leave visible damage to the brain if lethal. A timely autopsy could reveal a good amount of brain atrophy, as well as a thin layer of pus covering the meninges, the brain's outermost layer. There'd also likely be apparent tissue inflammation and swelling in the brain's ventricles. The normal state of Crispin's brain definitely raised a red flag. Similarly, Colonel Swope's autopsy revealed no signs of apoplexy in his chest or arteries. Unfortunately, however, since the body had been frozen in the cemetery's holding vote longer than Christmas, his brain was harder to examine. This uncertainty kept coroners debating over the accuracy of the findings, and Hyde used it to his benefit. Around this time, he took measures to clear his name. He called for Dr. Stewart, claiming he had begun experiencing symptoms of typhoid. Logically, a man accused of poisoning others with typhoid wouldn't give it to himself. But Dr. Stewart wasn't so sure. This was the same Dr. Stewart who had found Dr. Hyde's typhoid sample severely tampered with. Hyde had obviously used the germs for something. And it was simply too odd a coincidence that the Swope family had been struck by the disease less than a month after Dr. Stewart had handed Hyde the samples. Skeptical, Stewart took a sample of Hyde's blood and tested it twice. One came back negative, the other positive. Confused, Stewart ran more tests and soon reached a dark conclusion. The typhoid cultures in Hyde's blood were dead. In a single moment, everything clicked for Dr. Stewart. Dr. Hyde had injected himself with the dead bacteria that Dr. Stewart had placed in his office. Dr. Stewart brought his suspicions to Dr. Twyman, who was already convinced of Hyde's guilt at this point. The Swopes themselves had formally proceeded with the investigation after the autopsies of the Colonel and Chrisman. The case was now becoming public. On January 14th, page one of the Post-Dispatch newspaper read, Arrest in murder for a $10 million stake anticipated. But the official arrest wouldn't happen until February 10th, 1910. Nearly a month later, on March 5th, 38-year-old Bennett Clark Hyde was indicted on 11 crimes. The first-degree murder of Colonel Thomas Swope, the first-degree murder of Chrisman Swope, manslaughter for killing cousin Moss Hunton by bleeding him to death, and the unlawful poisoning of eight others with typhoid. Despite the list of charges against him, he seemed to be in good spirits. 
Maybe he was comforted knowing that his wife Frances still stood by his innocence and promised to hire him the most expensive of lawyers. And indeed, the defense put up a strong fight when the trial began in April 1910. It helped that quite a few things went wrong for the prosecution. Dr. Twyman died suddenly of a liver problem, so he couldn't testify as a witness. Grand jury notes went missing, and the defense argued that the only death they needed to prove innocence on was Colonel Swope's. They seemed to believe Chrisman's cause of death was typhoid fever. As for Colonel Swope, one doctor for the defense disputed the notion of murder by cyanide poisoning and claimed a heart condition might have killed him. But even a tough defense couldn't rule out the shocking testimony from Swope relatives and horrified nurses. Around 10.15 a.m. on Monday, May 16th, the jury came forward with a verdict. Guilty of murder in the first degree. They urged life in prison. But Hyde wouldn't go down so easily. He spent years in court battles and, in 1914, somehow succeeded in having the case dismissed likely due to the ruthless attorneys paid for with his wife's family money. Given the sheer amount of eyewitness testimony, it's really shocking that Hyde was able to escape his alleged crimes relatively scot-free. Speaking for myself, the circumstantial evidence against Hyde is pretty difficult to put aside. What we have here is another episode that highlights how corrupt men in positions of power are able to get away with unthinkable acts, all because of their respected standing. Hyde's greed was the most toxic murder weapon in this story, and it's tragic how much the Swope family suffered before the truth finally came out. Though Francis had stood by Hyde throughout the initial court proceedings, it seems she finally came to her senses about his behavior. She divorced him 10 years later in 1920, citing his cruelty and violence. By that point, she'd had two of his kids. As for Hyde's life beyond bars, well, his medical career in Kansas City had been tarnished by the Swope scandal. So he moved to Lexington, where he managed to open a small medical practice. In 1934, Hyde collapsed suddenly at a newsstand. His death was ruled as apoplexy, a peculiar type of irony since he'd once claimed two of his victims had suffered this exact same fate. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you very much. For more information on Dr. Bennett Clark Hyde, among the many sources we used, we found Deaths on Pleasant Street, The Ghastly Enigma of Colonel Swope and Dr. Hyde by Giles Fowler, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. 
This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, edited by Maggie Admire, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Joshua Kern. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. 